It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In this episode, I've got an update on my health. It's a good one. But before I get to that, I get to hear about how you think I've gone off the rails in our weekly Clark Stinks segment. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. I was reading about your cheap printers. HP has a program that works on printers as cheap as $40. Instant Ink gives you 15 pages of print for 99 cents. After you use the 15, you keep printing and they will charge $1 for the next set of 10. If you don't use all the 10 that you buy, they are rolled over to the next month and you get free ink as needed. I've had this for three full years and have paid next to nothing. I just got two cartridges from them that are worth more than what I spent over three years. Check it out, Paul in Massachusetts. Paul, I'm just smiling because I've had so many people who've complained and been furious about the Hewlett-Packard printing subscription program. But in your case, you are the perfect person for it. You have that New England thriftiness about you, and you are showing it right now. And it's great, in your case, if you have ultra-low printing volume, that's when the HP printing subscription program does work out perfectly, because you're paying only for what you use at at extremely low cost effectively in a low volume environment. If you're a high volume environment, the HP thing isn't your friend at all. About 20 years ago, you were advising people to cash in their whole life insurance and get term life. My husband and I had $100,000 policies on each of us. We cashed them and got term insurance policies. We are now in our mid-60s and our term insurance policies are at a maturity and we cannot afford to purchase term life insurance at the rates available at our age, so we will no longer have any insurance. Following your advice was one of the biggest mistakes of my life. It is very disappointing to be at our age and if we had kept the whole life, it would have paid up by now. And that's from Anonymous. Well, I I am very sorry for the circumstances you're in. I have never in my career recommended as a blanket thing that people dump existing whole life policies or any other what are known as permanent insurance policies and just by term. There was a, a big push overall in the marketplace 20 years ago to the phrase was buy term and invest the rest. What I have said is that, uh, and I've said this for uh, gosh, as far back as when you feel like I encourage you to do this, is I've said that you should have an existing whole life or a variable universal life or anything of that type is what's known as permanent insurance evaluated to see if it's a policy you should keep, dump, or uh, you may have a conversion privilege. And there's a service offered by the Consumer Federation of America that I've recommended forever that you pay a fee that is $150. Worth it. I just used it, actually, for my parents. What'd you find out? I'll tell you later. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, 
So it, you're able through having a uh, impartial fiduciary analysis know whether you do keep an existing policy or dump it or something else and uh, or borrow against it as an alternative. Now let's look at your situation in your mid-60s. Typically, the reason you buy term life insurance is replacement of income in the event of somebody's untimely demise during their key working years. That's one of the principal reasons of having term life insurance, and that's why most people have it till some point in their 60s or till age 70. Using a whole life policy as a way of building up um, like a savings account is generally a pretty inefficient way to do it. So the question is, over the 20 years, you paid uh, a tiny, tiny fraction, maybe 5% of the cost of the whole life policy, what you had to pay for the term policy. So the 95% that wasn't going to premiums, where did it go? What did you do with it? Was it invested? Did it go into a 401k or a Roth IRA or anything like that? So having, quote unquote, paid up life insurance is not necessarily a necessary goal in life. Again, I'm very sorry that you found yourself in a situation where you feel I was the one that led you down a bad path that has painted your financial life into a corner. Uh, But as a general rule, people are better off with term life insurance. Again, the question of whether you dump what you already have is not an automatic yes. It's a matter of having an evaluation done on the individual policy or policies that you own. If you want to see that service, it's at evaluatelifeinsurance.org. I've heard Clark talk several times recently about reducing withholding and instead saving in an interest-bearing account. Although this makes perfect sense in theory, listeners need to understand there are minimum amounts that must be submitted to the IRS each tax year through withholding or estimated tax payments. The amount must be at least 90% of your ultimate tax bill for that year or 100% of the prior year's tax bill, whichever is less. Failure to meet these minimums can trigger penalties for underpayment of estimated taxes. And that's from Brian. Brian, you're completely correct. Uh, when I talk about reducing, reducing withholding, generally I'm talking towards people who use excess withholding as a way of forced savings. So that when they get a uh, file their return, that they're looking forward to getting what feels like a windfall as a method of forced savings. And for a number of reasons, I have advised against doing that, particularly because of tax ID theft that's been going on. And then that money you've overwithheld, you don't get back for 10 to 14 months typically. But when you reduce your withholding, I'm not trying to put you into dangerous territory, only get you to not excess withhold. I was a bit surprised that in the review of the way you get to local TV stations, you failed to mention some important information on the streaming front. You mentioned Hulu Live and YouTube, but failed to mention FUBU. FUBO. FUBO. I said it wrong. FUBO. I tried YouTube before FUBO and find FUBO more user-friendly, and I also can reach a live person for technical support, which was not the case with YouTube. 
It's good to have choices. Not everyone will like one platform. I hope you're more careful when you give out advice to give full advice and not leave out information so we can make an educated choice in the streaming world. Thank you very much. And who was that from? Anonymous uh, as anonymous, well? Anonymous, yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Fubo is a very viable alternative. They obviously have a big emphasis on sports, but they have general streaming and, yes, local channels. And it, they went to a system recently where you had to uh, subscribe multiple months at a time. The marketplace didn't like it. They've gone back to allowing you to subscribe month by month. And we used to have far, far more options for monthly streaming than we have now for traditional like cable kind of things. And so it is very important that I mention Fubo and also mention Sling as an alternative for people. And we do have that tool on Clark.com. Yeah. Okay. Oh, thank you. The tool is so wonderful. Took us a lot of development effort to do it. What you do is you put in the channels that are most important to you. And then we'll show you who's the cheapest streaming service to use that gets you those channels. And then as you add channels, you'll see, oh, now I've gone from this much a month to that much. Do I really need that, which is my sixth favorite channel? Or can I live without it and save so much money per month? So you're able to do all these what ifs and the tool is dynamic and automatically shows what your monthly bill would be and which service would give you the lowest possible monthly bill. You recently posted a comparison of Costco executive and Gold Star memberships. The conclusion was that spending $3,000 a year would cover the extra $60 for the executive membership and annual rewards. You did not consider paying for purchases with a regular Visa card. Using a 1.5% cashback card, you would break even at $4,000 a year. Also, the cashback would be available sooner, and that's from Mike. Mike, thank you. So uh, we were doing Costco all in. You have the Costco Visa card. You're earning the 2% cash back for Costco purchases. You gave the example of the 1.5%. Um, yeah, so the good thing with the executive membership is if you buy it and you don't shop there enough, you can go in and they'll refund the money back to you from day one for the difference you paid for it. So if you are spending more time at Costco. And I see people there who the break-even point in Mike's example, 4,000 instead of 3,000. Mike, go with me on a Saturday or Sunday to Costco and you'll be shocked how many people meet that dollar amount in one shopping trip. <laughs> wow. I mean, the Costco rule is, you know, you don't get a cart because you get a cart, you're magically going to spend $200. And then I'll see people there that are spending thousands all in one shopping trip. I followed Clark's advice, which usually is smart and financially advantageous, but I waited until February 15th to shop for my wife for Valentine's Day oh, this no. year. Oh, no. On the what 15th, the shelves were bare. The cards were already gone. I ended up getting an old card and plastic flowers. My wife was PO'd. I usually trust your advice, but in this case, you need to leave the romance stuff to Dr. Ruth. Signed in the doghouse. <laughs> okay, so my counterpoint is on the 15th, I was in a store and they had the roses marked down 75% and they had a ton of them. So it just might have required you going to one more, two more stores 
to really get the savings. I am really sorry that I put you deep in the doghouse. Tell your wife it's all my fault. Clark, I've been listening to you for the last several months and noticed you're very partial towards renting over owning a house. Today, you encouraged a millennial family from California to continue renting instead of buying. Please keep in mind that many millennials, myself included, are ready to own a house and are struggling to do so in this economy. There is security in owning your own house, increased freedom, and you own something instead of just paying for a roof over your head. If I'm not mistaken, you own your house, do you not? Please remember owning a house is a rite of passage many of us are ready for but are struggling to do and give advice we can use to achieve this dream. And that's from Emily. Emily, thank you. And my advice is that if in today's really overheated housing market, you want to go ahead and buy a house, please buy one, Emily, that you can be comfortable living in for a decade as a minimum period of time. Because the math is a shorter cycle, the effective cost of renting in most of the country is a lot cheaper right now, even though rents have escalated around the country. The cost of renting in much of the country is cheaper than the cost of home ownership. So you need a long ownership cycle where you can lock in today's, even though the rates have gone up some, still by historical measures, today's very good interest rates, owning a home for a cycle of a decade or longer helps you overcome with that lower interest rate a lot of the higher purchase price you will have had in that house. A few about this topic. Clark, as much as I enjoy your podcast, I find it disgusting how you warn people to change how they receive payments for side hustles so they can avoid paying taxes due to new laws going into effect this year. You use terms like wanting to be above board instead of obeying the law while avoiding terms like tax fraud and crime. You may say that you aren't encouraging income tax evasion, but that is exactly what you're doing. Denial isn't just a river in Egypt, and that's from James. James, you know what? You and the others who posted are right. I should not have been amoral on the issue involving the tax forms being produced for people getting payments through Venmo or Cash App. PayPal, that kind of thing. Um, A lot of people who do side hustles are pocketing the money, not reporting the income. And that's why there's the new reporting requirement. And I talked about it so flippantly that you are right, James, that I was uh, just looking the other way at people committing uh, what is Truly what you said, evading paying income tax on earnings. Uh, I was speaking about it that way because I know so many people just do that. I mean, you think about people who get tips and cash, um, they're not really reporting that. So I, I just should have done it differently. Thank you. Few about this one as well. I've read your article on why you love Roth IRAs, which I agree on. However, I believe you're incorrect that all monies and activities held within a Roth IRA are not subject to taxes. And then they explain why, and that's from CE. All right. So, so that. in the particular case that you're referring to, CE, you're talking about something that I've never been a fan of, and that's uh, doing private placement real estate inside 
uh, traditional or Roth IRA. It has been an area that uh, is a very difficult accounting thing and can cause tax problems inside something that is supposed to be a tax-sheltered environment. There's nothing wrong with inside a Roth IRA or traditional doing a, uh, a publicly traded REIT or a uh, REIT index fund or a real estate mutual fund. But when you get involved in real estate private placements inside a retirement account, you're adding layers of complexity that are just too great. And a lot of real estate advantages, particularly with uh, private placement real estate, comes on the tax side of the ledger. Going back to the tax Mm -hmm. conversation of a minute ago, and they are perfectly legal tax benefits that make a lot of private real estate best held inside a taxable investment rather than inside something like a Roth or traditional IRA. I'm going to squeeze one more in because I know you want to address it. Your recent rant against the Frontier Spirit Airlines merger showed an elitist attitude towards flying and a disregard for freedom of choice. For example, here are actual round-trip airfares for the 90-minute flight from Denver to Salt Lake City. Caviar class, or first on United Airlines, is $701. Common class coach on Delta is $261. And cattle class discount on Frontier is $64. A passenger can weigh all the factors and make the choice that best fits their budget and level of comfort desired. Personally, I would stand on my head in the center aisle for 90 minutes if I only had to pay $64 round-trip. But that's my choice, and others might think differently. You mentioned many Frontier and Spirit complaints, and I feel that that is because some people want to pay for a discount price for caviar service. So please help promote competition and freedom of choice by giving the discount airlines a fair chance. Richard. Richard, thank you. So uh, it's funny that I came off that way to you because I fly uh, Frontier, Spirit, and Allegiant. I've flown all three. And right now I'm highest level status on Frontier which you may wonder what that gets me. I get a free seat assignment to the extra legroom seat, and I get a free carry-on bag when I fly on the plane. And uh, I also get all my airfares are refundable because if you fly them enough, you get the status. So I do fly the deep discounters, or as some people refer to them, the hard discounters. The problem comes with the limited flight schedule If they cancel a flight, uh, you're left high and dry because they may not fly to that city for a couple more days. So I feel like it's important that I point out that these airlines do have more customer complaints and you do get wonderful savings. You have to know there's a trade-off with them. So Clark the Elite... See, I even have elite status on Frontier. (laughs) How about that? I get the discount den fares as well on Frontier. Anyway, uh, I need to tell you something that I did that I don't want you to do. I had talked on the podcast before how I'd put off for years having an operation. And, well, it wasn't my best decision and I'm going to fill you in what I did that I don't want you ever to do guys this is such a guy thing and then I've got more of your questions too 
I had mentioned offhand last year that, uh, well, now three and a half years ago, when I had an annual physical with my primary care doctor, he said, you know, you have a hernia. And I didn't even know what that was. And he said, yeah, you need to go see a surgeon and get this taken care of. So I didn't. Go back two and a half years ago from my next annual physical, because I'm good about that. I get an annual physical every year. He said, uh, how come you haven't taken care of this hernia? I said, oh, well, been busy, just haven't gotten around to it. Next year rolls around and says, why haven't you done this? By the way, you're my last physical ever. I'm retiring. Go take care of this. I didn't. Waited a whole nother year, basically. And then just recently, and several of you who've had hernia operations were like, Clark, be a big boy. Just go get it done. So finally, I do. And I had the surgery recently. And... After the operation, you know, I'm out cold. Doctor calls my wife, Lane, and says, you know, Clark should have done something about this a lot sooner. This is one of the biggest hernias I've ever seen. It was the size of an apple. (laughs) And uh, I have quite an incision. And uh, I, I, I should talk about the pain pill, shouldn't I? Sure. Okay, so just so you know. This is not a confession. I have an aversion to ever taking any kind of pain medicine. And so the doctor had prescribed this like turbo thing that's some kind of, uh, what are those things that are so dangerous called? Narcotics? Yeah, uh, (laughs) an oxycotton kind of thing. And I'm like, I'm not taking that. So uh, the doctor says, Clark's really going to need that. I mean, I had to really do serious work on this man. He's going to need that. And Lane said, he's never going to take that. He said, oh, he'll take it. Let me tell you, he's going to hurt bad enough. I didn't take him. So now I've got to go get him destroyed. I've got to go to a pharmacy and get him destroyed. The thing that blew my mind is when I was talking to you on like the second day or whatever, and you were like, I took one Advil. And I was like, one Advil? Like, I take two if I have a... No, I mean, Advil, you're only supposed to take one 200 milligram. Tylenol, you're supposed to take two regular Tylenols for a dose. But anyway, I took took one Tylenol the first day and then took uh, uh, Advil one each time, four hours apart the second day. No, I guess I took three that day because I took one Tylenol, three Advil over the time and never took that opiate stuff. Ugh. That stuff scares me so much. I'm still kind of tender, kind of sore, a little uncomfortable, but I'm getting there. You walked miles and miles, though. Oh, because I had this conversation with the surgeon before the surgery, and he said, most important thing is after this surgery, you're just going to want to lay in bed all day. He said, that can cause blood clots and really slow your recovery. I want you walking. And I said, how much? And he said, oh, at least a mile a day. I said, is it okay if I walk more? And he said, how much more? I said, well, I like to walk 10 miles a day. Is that okay? And he said, sure. <laughs> and you so, did. Uh, no, I, I, 
I haven't had enough strength. I've only averaged eight miles a day. Oh gosh! Well, so I've step been, it up, man. been out there walking, trying to fully recover. But okay, we're all glad that you're okay, though. So for real. they had me so doped up for the surgery that I was talking to my oldest daughter, and I think she recorded the call because I was so loopy, and I said, "Oh, I'm great. Everything's fine." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Apparently, I was not so fine. You not, were fine was, in the moment. Yeah. And Lane's really worried because the night of the surgery, there was a sale and I booked some air travel and she's sure I messed it up. I would guess you didn't. I, I don't know. We'll see. But <laughs> okay. okay. So the point of all this rambling about my operation is guys. And gals. It's really a guy thing that guys put things off. Guys don't go to the doctor. They don't, they don't take care of themselves. Women are more likely to go to the doctor. Not true. every woman. True, true, true. Not yes. every guy. But, you know, don't be stupid like I was. I mean, how's that for some phrase? <laughs> yeah. I was stupid and put myself at risk. And some really bad stuff could have happened to me, which the surgeon was happy to lay out to me that for delaying so long. And so when when you're told you need to take care of something, take care of it. Three and a half years, am I an idiot? Yes, I was an idiot. So now you're going to hear advice from an idiot. <laughs> Just Stop. be prepared for that. This is from Carol in Tennessee. What tips do you have for those of us that are very shy and people pleasers when it comes to talking to the cable company and the phone company? I was raised to always be polite. I'm not that good with confrontations or telling a company I no longer need their services. I'm planning to cut my cable in the next month or two and then look into paying less for my internet. So Carol, great question. And particularly you're from Tennessee in the South. There's an ultra premium on politeness. So first things first, see if you can dump the cable company online. Uh, Used to be you couldn't cancel service online, but they don't really care anymore if you keep paying them for television. Uh, Television is not a money maker for them anymore. The cable monsters make their money on the high-speed internet. And so you're not going to find it's confrontational when you call and say that you're discontinuing television from them. So that won't be a problem. But online is where I want the real action to be. I want you to go shop with the Monopoly local phone company in your area and with the cable company to see what specials they're offering on internet. And then instead of it being like a confrontation, you're like, hey, I found this great deal from whoever your local phone company is. And I really love being with you guys. You've been great to me, but I feel like I got to switch to them. I mean, all positive messages. So you're being assertive without being in any way confrontational. And so when you find out that the phone company is offering internet for 39 a month and you're paying the cable company 69 a month or whatever the numbers are they'll find a deal for you to try to keep you from going to the phone company and that's not confrontational and they do it every day it's routine that people shop around find a better deal and they want it so carol don't feel at all that this is any kind of confrontation event 
in either case, with the pay TV, they don't care about whether you have any more. And with the internet, they're used to that. One thing that always works for me, um, because we are, you can always be polite, um, in, and you were raised that way. So I would say what I continue to say if I'm trying to cancel service and they keep making me offers, I say, no, I don't care for that, but thank you so much for offering it to me. And so the person that you're talking to doesn't own the, the cable company or the phone company, and they're just trying to do their job. And, and um, you know, we can just be polite by saying no. And the other thing I would say is if you have someone who's a Yankee like me or just someone in your life that's not as averse to um, saying no to people, have them come over, you know, have lunch with them and have them be on the phone call with you um, sitting there together. Because I've done that for my parents and some other people um, in the past. And that can be really helpful too. More questions here. This is from Jake in Georgia. My fiance and I are planning to go to Quebec City for our honeymoon in the last week of September. Is there a right time to buy tickets when they're at their lowest? Yeah. So first of all, Quebec City is really fun and you'll have a great time there. As far as buying tickets to Quebec City, you want to wait for a spring fall sale that usually happens in the month of April. We'll cover April, May, September, October. And last week of September, it'll start getting, could be a little chilly in Quebec City. The hotels will be more affordable then as a result. And I did want to tell you, a lot of people in Canada come to the closest border city in the U.S. to actually fly in the U.S. because airfares from a border town are much cheaper than the airfares are on the Canadian side of the border to much of the U.S. And so it, it could be that you might want to look at a map and see what city on the U.S. side is really close to where you're going to be in Quebec City. And maybe the airfare would be so much cheaper staying within the U.S. for air and then going by surface up to Quebec City. Just a thought that could save you a substantial amount of money. The reason is there's this ugly treaty that the U.S. and Canada reached that all Canadian cities within 200 miles of the U.S. border, you pay double tax on your airline ticket. From Miriam in Texas. Hi, my daughter's luggage was lost on a major airline. She had over $3,000 worth of stuff in it, including her brand new Surface laptop I gave her for Christmas. It's been a month and we are supposed to know something by now, but we don't. What can we do next? All right, Miriam, first, let me throw out the bad news right away. Airlines do not cover anything that is likely to be a theft item. They don't cover jewelry. They don't cover um, electronics of any kind. They don't cover computers. Um, Trying to think what other items are targets for somebody who might reach in and steal. They exclude any payment for anything. They will only pay your daughter for the clothing, shoes, um, accessories like a purse, anything like that that is in the luggage. The fact the airline is not paid is terrible, particularly since they charge you now to check that bag. File a complaint with the U.S. Department of Transportation at dot.gov. You'll see where there's a complaint form, and an airline that puts you on ignore 
tends all the government does is forward your complaint and then the airline will respond to you but it is a common occurrence that when an airline does lose your bag they try to stall on you paying on your claim and in this case you want to push some buttons now the other button to push is a possible outcome is if your daughter travels enough you may be able to get more money from the airline in a claim and future travel vouchers than they're going to pay for the possessions that were lost in the luggage but that only really applies if you travel regularly because airlines look at giving you that money is basically costing them almost nothing and usually you're given a year to use that money where when they have to write a check, that's real money coming out of their account. And from Jill in Illinois, I'm going to e-file my tax return for the first time. My 84-year-old tax attorney who favored paper returns has retired. What is the best tax prep software to use? My return is not simple. I own several rental properties and have several schedules to attach, including a Schedule E. Jill, this is so crazy. Don't file your own return. Go find another tax attorney, CPA who does tax, an enrolled agent. Do not file your return yourself. You said up front, your return is not simple. The tax code is very complicated. And I love people doing work themselves. But in a case where you have a really complicated life, you have this great success of having multiple rental properties, you got a Schedule E, you got all these things going on, hire a tax professional. What you pay him or her will come back and what you end up not having to pay in tax for deductions, exemptions, and credits that you're just not going to know about with a more complicated situation. And odds are tax prep software may not find it either. So in this case, don't do self-serve. And I want to thank you for listening to this episode. I know we hear from a lot of people who are doing well with their money. I'm so glad to hear you're doing well. Also know that many people are struggling out there. You're having a hard time making ends meet. You may have a lot of debt. You feel like you're never going to get out of it. But I talk to people every day who face this feeling of darkness that they have too much of whatever in their lives and not enough of what they want in this case debt i want you to know that life will have rough times my dad used to say when he was alive life's 99 rounds and you'll have good ones and you'll have bad ones and you may feel knocked down right now by those debts but i want you to know you can tackle them You can move forward with your life. Have faith and confidence that you can come up with a plan to build back your finances in a healthy way and kiss that debt goodbye. Believe in yourself.